Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the fourth uh, panel of the 2018 Lincoln Leeds Seminar Series. And thank you for attending what is promising to be a stimulating panel discussion here at Lincoln College. Unfortunately, I will have to start off with some bad news. To our regret, Professor Margaret Stevens cannot be here with us tonight, but we're absolutely lucky and very grateful um, to uh, have her colleague, Professor Ian Crawford, uh, instead here. Um, thank you so much, Ian, for stepping in at the last minute. My name is Casper Pronder. I read for an MPhil in modern European history, and I will be chairing tonight's discussion of this audaciously big question, should money make the world go round? We might be inclined to accept this proverbial saying, money makes the world go round, as a plain description of our everyday life experience. After all, we're living in a profoundly commodified world. Is it not astonishing that the large-scale accumulation of personal data seems to be the most prolific business model of the 21st century? We live in a world that is, on average, wealthier than ever before. And yet we also live in a time of political turmoil. The omnipresent catchwords need not be mentioned. Is it the return of the political into a globalized market economy? In any case, the question to what extent money should make the world go round and how politics should possibly tame it appears to me as more than just an intellectual game, but as a very urgent issue to address. And for this discussion, it is essential to ponder the role of money in our economy and to understand it better. And that's what we're here for tonight. So I'm very excited to uh, hear the perspectives of our panelists on the matter. But before we get started, I'd like to introduce our guests briefly. Our first speaker, Ian Crawford, uh, who kindly stepped in for Margaret Stevens, is a professor of economics at Oxford and a senior research fellow at Northfield College. He graduated from the Birmingham Polytechnic with a first-class BA in economics, did an MSc at the University of Bristol, and completed his PhD at University College London. Ian also holds a position as co-director of the Center for the Microeconomic Analysis of Public Policy at the Institute for Fiscal Studies, which is based in London. He works on applied microeconomics and he has wide research interests in the fields of behavioral economics, choice behavior, revealed preference theory, and many more. Panelist Jessica Milligan is uh, undertaking a DPhil in economics, having also completed an MPhil in economics at Oxford. Before coming to Oxford, Jessica worked in um, management consulting in London, during which time she specialised in healthcare transformation. Her undergraduate degree at Cambridge was in Spanish and Russian, focusing on revolutionary futurist poetry. Although this may appear to be an unusual pathway to economics, you can chart her underlying interests people, their choices and interactions, and ultimately, their well-being. Her current research lies in microeconomic theory-based empirical testing within the field of behavioral economics. So thank you again for joining us uh, tonight, and I think we are ready to hear our first presentation by Professor Ian Crawford. Uh, it's very nice uh, to be here. Um, although I was absolutely horrified when I saw the title. 
<laughs> the reason is it, it contains a question of, uh, there's a should, and questions of what ought to be um, are, are questions which economists profess themselves to be ill-equipped to answer. It absolutely doesn't stop us trying to answer them, but we, as a profession, we tend to think of ourselves as people who are concerned with what is, rather than that which ought to be. Um, and, of course, the is-ought distinction was, was something which David Hume and others have written about. Matters of what is are questions about positive aspects of the world, and what ought to be are normative, and these two things are best kept apart, and yet economists are some of the worst at leaping from is's to oughts. So I'm going to try and um, keep my is's and my oughts separate in this talk, um, but I am going to focus mainly on the is, because it seems to me that the title presupposes an implicit is, that money does make the world go round and then invites us to reflect on whether this is a good thing or not. Um, what I'm going to argue um, is that empirically, the idea often associated with economics that people are self-interested and financially motivated is just empirically incorrect. Um, and this model that we sometimes call homo economicus comes in for a good kicking um, within economics by the behavioral groups and, and from without by what I would describe as sensible people. And um, the alternative that I'd like to suggest is homo equalis. Um, so I'm going to focus principally on this, this positive question about is it. And what I'm, the, the way I'm going to do this is talk about a project of which I have some involvement. It's called the Human Sociality Project. Now, the Human Sociality Project is a cross-cultural experimental economics um, endeavor in which some experimental economists and anthropologists went out and um, ran experiments, um, altruism experiments, in 15 or so very in some cases, extremely remote societies from around the planet. These were the societies that um, were sampled in the Human Sociality Project, and we've got all the way from Siberia to Papua New Guinea uh, to coastal swamps of um, Colombia on the Pacific. And a very large team of people went out and, and, and interacted with, with these people. I'm going to tell you a little bit about what was discovered. This tells us a bit more about the, um, about the uh, societies that were um, studied. Of course, there are some students in here. Students are the sort of prototypical experimental subject group in psychology and economics because they're sort of cheap and available. <laughs> uh, uh, whereas the, the rest of these people are extremely hard to get to. Please, please don't ask us to do another treatment because it would involve you know, three days in a canoe. And it was just not going to happen. Uh, the data is as the data is. But you can see you know, the, the, the different sorts of people um, that, were, um, that were taking part in this. So we have people in Ghana in the middle of Accra, high, highly dense urban environment, and mostly waged workers. And we've got the Hadza. Uh, who are almost, I think, the last hunter-gatherers left on Earth. So a very diverse set of people. Well, the thing that the Human Sociality Project did was it, it, it kept the treatment of these people as identical as possible. 
you know, it's possible to have a discussion about whether this was actually achieved, and we might see some data which shows that it might not have been. But the idea was essentially to run exactly the same experimental protocol in all of these different places. So the treatment, as it were, was kept the same, and the location and the subjects were varied. That was the idea. The trouble was with you know, previous rounds of this sort of thing, they run slightly different experiments in different places, and then the results weren't terribly comparable. So what were they asked to do? Well, this is an absolute classic in um, experimental psychology and experimental economics. Um, all of the subjects, um, large samples in each case, were, were asked to um, indulge in what you might call cake-cutting games. Essentially, all of these things asked respondents or the people in, in these villages to, um, to take something and make a decision about how to divide it amongst themselves and uh, somebody else. Now, the somebody else was somebody else from their community, although the play itself was anonymized, so you didn't actually know whether your mate Bob was the recipient of your largesse. But the issue really was, here's, you've got some stuff, are you interested in giving it to anybody else? Um, so the three games that they played are called the dictator game, the ultimatum game, and the third party punishment game. And they're all, uh, they're all you know, pretty similar, but they just get more elaborate. So the dictator game is a very straightforward one. A subject was given a stake equal in value to approximately the value of one day's labour. So it was money if it was a, um, a society which used money, but otherwise it was goods to the value of, essentially what they'd get by working for a day. And they were asked to divide this um, between themselves and an anonymous recipient from their own society, and they could give it away in lumps of ten. So they could keep it all, they could give away 10%, they could give away 20%, 30%, all the way out, and they could give all of it away if they wanted to. And that's called the dictator game. And it's not really a game in the strategic sense because the other person you know, is just an inert participant in the experiment. The ultimatum game is an elaboration on this. It's essentially the same sort of setup. Person one gets some resource and they can give it to person two. In the ultimatum game, though, person two can refuse. And if person two refuses what they're offered, nobody gets anything. They don't get anything, but the offerer doesn't get anything as well. So you can see the issue with, with this. If I'm offering something to Jess and it's insultingly low, she may decide that it's not enough and say, no, I'm rejecting that offer, in which case she gets nothing and I get nothing. Alternatively, she can accept it, in which case it just sort of happens. So this is like the dictator game, but there's a, there's a sort of jeopardy element. And I have to, this is now a game, because I have to take the other person's response into account. The third party punishment game uh, involves Michael. Um, so uh, it's the same sort of setup as the ultimatum game. I'm offering something to Jess. Um, she can no longer refuse. Michael is a spectator who is uh, endowed with some resources of his own. And if he doesn't like what I'm doing to Jess, then he can find me. He can take away some of my resource. So if he thinks I've been insufficiently generous, he can exact a fine. And, but it costs him something to do it. He has to pay to do it. So he loses something by essentially involving himself in the transaction between us. So these are three, if you're familiar with this sort of literature, these would be very familiar games. And if you're not, they're, they're, they're relatively simple. And you can see that they essentially invite people to show some kind of other regarding behavior, but with some interesting quirks attached. So, what would somebody who did think that money made the world go round do? Somebody who was financially self-interested entirely. Um, so this is the textbook answer, which you'll find in the 
popular undergraduate um, economics textbooks. In the dictator game, you would offer nothing if you're financially motivated. Why would you give away anything? So that's a straightforward prediction. In the ultimatum game, um, well, principle anything is supportable as what they call Nash equilibrium in that game, but in reality, the, the prediction is you will either offer nothing or a tiny positive amount. The reason is that if I offer Jess a tiny positive amount, it's never a best response for her to reject it because then she gets nothing. So I give her 10%, which is the smallest I can give her, and, and she'd be crazy not to accept it because she's as self-motivated, self-interested, and financially motivated as I am, and so on. What about the third-party punishment game? Well, here I'm, I'm on safe ground because there, you know, if, if Michael uh, is completely financially self-interested, um, then um, then there's no way he's going to pay money to get involved in a private matter between myself and Jess. Okay, so um, the homo economicus aspect here of this is fairly clear-cut. What do we actually see? Okay, well. This, this group is called the Santianga. Um, they're descended from slaves and um, they live in Colombia. And what we've got on the horizontal axis, if you look at DG1, that's a histogram with the offers going along on the horizontal axis and then the number of people that made an offer of that amount on the um, vertical axis. So there, in theory, there could be 11 bars there. You can offer nothing, 10%, 20%, all the way up to all of it. So the first thing I would invite you to notice is the complete absence of a bar on zero. Nobody amongst the Sankianga acted according to the way that Homo economicus is supposed to act. And these are not rich people. Um, if you look at the, the lyrics to Money Make the World Go around from Cabaret, it's all about money's really good when you're poor. Well, these people are poor and they give stuff away. And you can see that there are some people you know, up here who are really quite generous. Some people, gave, some people gave away about 90% of the state. This thing is the ultimatum game. So these are different subjects from within the same society, but these guys run the risk that if they're insufficiently generous, just can reject it, and in which case they're not going to get anything. So there's some risk here. And what you see is a bit of a movement towards higher offers and a big spike of 50%. Um, you also see uh, you know, something of a reduction in the number of offers up here. But in general, people are slightly more generous when, when, they, when there's a worry that it might not be accepted. These things are the acceptance probabilities in the same game. So this tells me the probability with which somebody in that society would accept an offer of zero, an offer of 10%, an offer of 20%, and so on. And about 60%, a little under, of people amongst the Sankyanga, if offered zero, would simply accept it. But it goes up, as you would expect, and everybody amongst the Sankyanga would accept an offer of 50% of the stake. But then something, if you're an economist, weird happens. It starts to go down again. So as somebody offers you more and more, you start to say no which is quite interesting behaviour, I would, I would, I would say. Um, and they're, they're even rejecting offers of 100%. Um, and the third-party punishment game, where you can see what's going on here, and this just tells you the probability with which somebody like Michael would intervene. Um, and about 60%, again, would intervene and fine me if I didn't offer Jess anything, and then it sort of declines. So that's the Sankey. These are the Simani from Bolivia. Um, a few of them are a little bit mean. But not very many. It's not 
the standard behavior amongst the Somali. Um, the acceptance probabilities as well, that, you know, quite a few people, about 60%, would reject nothing. But as soon as you offer them anything, they just say thank you very much and trouser it. And, and that carries, carries on. They're much less, it seems, interested in getting involved in other people's business, although some of them will find, um, you know, in Michael's role. As the last one I'll just show you to sort of make this general point, the Hadza. And the Hadza are very interesting. They're not numerous in number. Um, and as it says on the slide, they're amongst the last hunter-gatherers on Earth. Now these are about the meanest people that were found in the... Um, <laughs> I shouldn't say mean, actually. Um, financially self-interested. <laughs> um, but even then, look at this little spike here nothing. Now, the Hadza have a hard life, and they consider themselves hard bargainers, and they are hard bargainers, but even they give stuff away. Um, and you can see that, as you might imagine, acceptance probabilities increase. Uh, quite a few people would accept zero. Um, it was it was still amongst this lot. Okay, so that's, uh, you know, and there's lots more going on, but I think that's enough to show you that and I just picked three societies that were sort of interesting. Homoeconomics is clearly not the right description of human behaviour, not amongst this very diverse set of people which the Human Sociality Project has tried to um, contact. A little bit of work and a little bit of thinking suggests a slightly more nuanced description of um, human behaviour which we call homo equalis. Homo equalis actually cares about other people. And that is precisely what we see, and formal models of those sorts of other regarding views about people um, fit the data much better than the financially self-interested thing. In fact, you, it turns out that it's quite a nuanced model homo-equalis. There is a difference. Everybody around the world seems to not like inequality, but there is a difference, it would seem, an empirically relevant difference that allows us to describe what's going on more accurately. If you distinguish between shame and envy, some people don't like being richer than other people, some people don't like being poorer than other people, but everyone doesn't like inequality. Now the weight that people place on the welfare of others varies across um, these societies, but what's also apparent is, is variations in homogeneity and heterogeneity. Um, this group is called the Guzi. Um, and they live a very regimented life. And if you look at the behaviour, this is the most, this is the, the histogram of the smallest variance that we found. Um, everybody more or less does the same thing amongst the Guzi. There, there is a thing called culture, it would appear. It's two economists who sort of think, well, who knew? But it turns out that it's true. Um, as a colleague of mine likes to say, the, the Guzi are the closest thing which an economist would find to an electron. The idea being that if you've seen one electron, you've seen them all, whereas if you've seen one member of the Guzi, you've almost seen them all, because they all do exactly the same thing, which is very interesting. The opposite of this were the Sankyang, well, sorry, the, the Susulunga. They live in Papua New Guinea, and they have some very heterogeneous behaviour and some quite weird stuff going on. A large proportion, 40% of people amongst the Susulunga would reject an offer of 100%. Um, and that's pretty wild. And it turned out, this is salutary um, 
for people that run these sorts of experiments. There's the game you think they're playing and then the game that they're really playing. And the game that they're really playing in this particular village in, in Papua New Guinea involves sorcery and threats thereof. Um, and uh, some extremely interesting behaviour resulted as a consequence. So, I should sum up. Um, the evidence from the Human Sociality Project is that the ought in question is undermined by the ears of how people actually are. Um, much public policy is built on the Homo economicus model. Typical, one of my other job at the IFS, that's you know, what the IFS do all the time, give people the right incentives and then assume that the financial self-interest will kick in and they'll, they'll do the appropriate thing. And lots of bits of public policy, like universal credit, are, are designed with that in mind. Um, but if Homo economicus is more accurate, which it may be, um, then alternative approaches based on shared values may be better. Thank you very much, Ian, for this uh, for these enlightening words. We might be better than we sometimes think, and I really liked uh, how the meaning of culture came out in this presentation. Um, and I'd now like to invite Jessica Milligan uh, to deliver uh, the last presentation of the night. which said that money does make the world go round, and it should make the world go round, um, but saying things on my slides, and making a mockery of my own slides, unconvincingly, I think I'm going to have to deliver the presentation I've prepared to do. Um, so thinking about this question, I thought, should money make the world go round? If yes, that relies on um, two assumptions. Um, first of all, that we correctly diagnose people's motivations for the choices that they're making day to day um, as led by money. And that might be a misunderstanding, it might be a misdiagnosis. And second of all, that um, if we want to make the world go round, if we want to change our outcomes, we need to be able to understand why people made those choices and also predict accurately how those choices will change when we make a policy intervention. And if either or both of those two things are flawed, then I would disagree with, with the uh, thesis topic. Um, but I also think it invites us to think about opportunities of um, what should make the world go round. So that's uh, the approach that I'm taking. I thought I should start off with something fundamental and shared with everyone, including non-economists. Um, and that is the story of the three little pigs. Um, <laughs> For those of you who aren't familiar with the uh, fairy tale, there are two unlucky little pigs who build their houses of straw and of sticks. Um, and there's one smug pig on the end who builds his house of bricks. Um, and when the big bad wolf comes around and blows those houses down, two are left to run away, rebuild, have their house down, run away, rebuild. No matter how many times I read the fairy tale, they're still making the same mistake. Um, while the third one is smug and happy and warm. So we might argue we should try and help the situation now. We might want to make a policy intervention to try and help um, presumably the two pigs who'd like a, uh, a safe home achieve it. So if we agree or decide to follow along the idea that money makes the world go around, we might want to take a series of actions before we decide what, what policy intervention we want to make. The first one would be we want to figure out what are the pigs buying, what are they spending their money on, and also what their income is. So
So let's suppose they only buy goods like truffles and turnips to eat, and then they buy straw sticks or bricks to build their houses. Um, and we look at this data, we look at what they're choosing, and we also see little pigs' incomes, and we see that unfortunately the first two cannot afford, together with the goods that they're consuming to eat, to actually build their houses out of bricks. Um, so we look at that and we think money's probably motivating their choice, um, a choice they wish they didn't have to make. And we make, might make any kind of policy recommendations on the basis of that, presuming that we've diagnosed their choice correctly. Um, for example, we might decide to, this is in honour of you, uh, Michael, decrease the interest rate um, so that they could borrow more money uh, to build houses of bricks um, rather than straw and, and, uh, and sticks. Um, we might also decide to subsidise turnips so that they spend less of their money on food and have more money to spend on brick houses. Um, there's, there's hundreds of things we could do. And finally, we would probably hope for the best, that we make this intervention and then the choices come out and finally we read the happy fairy tale of three little pigs who all live in a house of bricks. Um, and we move on. But what if the pigs aren't choosing the houses to be made of those materials because of price considerations or income considerations? And obviously, I'm not the first uh, to think about this question. Indeed, if I had been, I might be winning a Nobel Prize now. Um, but that has come and gone last year, as I'm sure many of you are aware, and if you weren't, then you were um, informed about about 10 minutes ago that Richard Thaler won a prize last year for his contributions to behavioral economics. And the thing that behavioral economics does is it builds a bridge between um, economics and psychology. And in doing so, it makes us think about things that affect our choices beyond those um, led by prices and income. So here are some examples, um, there are many. Um, Self-control, I guess the story would be, yes, I really want to save, and I really want to build my household of bricks, it's just tonight I quite fancy having truffles for dinner, um, but me tomorrow will definitely choose to start saving for bricks. Um, and then tomorrow comes around, and you continue eating truffles for dinner. Things like internal biases. Well, given that the wolf came yesterday, which was really unlucky, he's probably not going to come again today, so I don't need to worry about that for now. So kind of probab probabilistic mistakes that might influence our choices. Um, mental bandwidth um, is an area of current research which is fascinating. Um, if you're so exhausted, continually running away from a wolf who's chasing you and blowing your house down, while also trying to feed your family with turnips and potentially truffles, you simply don't have the energy to be looking at offers on brick houses in the newspaper, and therefore your kind of cognitive bandwidth is being used up living your day to day, and you can't start thinking about other opportunities. And the final one is that I'd like to bring up is to do with opportunities, and then I'm going to give you some real evidence um, rather than fairy tale evidence um, to back this point up. What if you never imagined that you would be the sort of person who would have a house made out of bricks? And so that's not even in your kind of vision of, of future possibilities for yourself. Um, so thinking about aspirations. Well, aspirations we can think about in general as kind of goals or dreams that help us make choices in order to try and achieve something. Um, but we can also think about them in a different way, which is that aspirations limit the kind of views that, or things that you would do that would be relevant for goals for you. So instead of being a kind of goal-orientated thing, they're actually constraining your internal 
kind of appreciation of opportunities. There might be loads of opportunities for growing houses over there, but you don't even think they're relevant, so you ignore them. And a question that is uh, topical in development economics at the moment and behavioural economics is, well, what if we can intervene to change people's aspirations so they can take, it, take advantage of opportunities that are already existing for them? Um, and over the summer, I worked for, as a research assistant um, for a group of economists at the Centre for the Study of African Economies, who in 2014 um, had an intervention in Ethiopia um, related to aspirational aspirations. So the intervention was as follows. They um, found rural villages in Ethiopia um, where there were no um, cinemas or TVs, and they screened free um, documentaries that were about one hour long, which simply told the stories of people similar to the communities um, where they were screening the, the films, telling success stories about their lives, so having goals, working towards them, without any uh, additional information from government or any financial aid from NGOs, and building projects such as um, saving up for a uh, irrigation pump for their agricultural business or setting up a, a flower selling business. And other villages received a, a placebo treatment, so they were just shown um, a sort of popular Ethiopian TV show. And there were other villages who received no intervention at all. So the idea, the, the idea was, well, what if people aren't thinking about investing because they don't think it's relative, relevant for them, even though we can see from the outside that it could actually um, significantly help their financial circumstances. Well, I probably wouldn't have told you this story if it didn't have a positive outcome. Um, so surprise, it does. Both six months after, after the screenings and up to five years later, so the follow-up came at the end of last year in 2017, there were positive changes both in the aspirational um, levels of those people who had received the uh, screening and also on their economic outcomes. Um, so I'll just check the numbers. Um, the, the way in case you're wondering that they measured aspirations, which of course may have been something that everyone was worrying about because it's not obvious. The great thing about prices and incomes is that we can observe them. Um, unfortunately, with aspirations, we cannot. Um, the way that this, this paper this research group approached it was to ask people what their aspirations were in four areas of their life. Um, one of them was their income, one of them was their kind of durable wealth level, one of them was how many years of schooling they'd like their eldest child to complete, and the final one was uh, social status, so what percentage of the community would you like um, to come to you to talk about problems that they're facing and ask you for advice. And then they were asked to wait which of those four things were most important to them, and that influenced their final kind of aspirations index level. So that went up. Um, it also went up this kind of forward-looking behaviour. So I guess I'm falling back into the trap of thinking that uh, money is an important factor here. Um, but the truth is, through this psychological channel, we saw changes in um, the use of credit, so taking advantage of the opportunities that had kind of from the outside, good-looking um, return on investment. Um, spending on schooling, um, the number of years that children on average were staying in school, and the number of children of primary school age who were enrolling in school. There was even a spillover effect. So if you had a neighbour who went to the cinema screening, um, you also uh, changed both your psychological outcomes, so your aspirational levels, and your economic activity. 
What does this mean? Well, I think it means two things. Firstly, that you can we can look to the kind of psychological effects of poverty on aspiration. So the circumstances in which you live are evidently influencing your aspiration level. Um, you probably need to look into that more. Lots of the models now try and endogenize aspirations and figure out what are the mechanisms by which people form them and then how do they update them um, through the life that they're living. But second of all, the amazingly powerful role of interventions in this psychological ch channel, um, other than the kind of classic uh, use of financial aid. So a final very brief uh, mention of another paper um, which has been developed over the last kind of four years. Um, this one more looks for evidence that in addition to um, the financial impact of having a child who has been sponsored in your family, um, this also relieves a kind of internal constraint, both the children and parents. So when a child is sponsored, the household benefits financially, of course, um, but additionally, they looked at, through interviewing the children and the parents, and also through analysing drawings um, that the children had done, whose title was, Draw a Picture of Yourself in the Rain, they were able to see that through the process of having the sponsorship, psychological levels such as aspiration, self-esteem, feeling empowered, having hope, um, were increasing as well. So, um, no, I don't think that money should make the world go round. Indeed, I think that by acknowledging that it doesn't um, means that we can be much more creative in the ways we think about achieving better outcomes. Um, Thank you, Jessica, for sharing these insights with us. I really liked how you showed us the fruitful combination of uh, psychology and economics. Uh, it seems to me that the um, idea of the homo economicus is really, on the one hand, it seems to be a, a certain straw man, and no one really believes in it. On the other hand, still a lot of models are actually based on, on this homo economicus. Uh, so I wonder how economics, um, which still has to make certain assumptions that have to be universalizable in a certain sense, how economics can react to these uh, trends uh, and insights from research in their models. Um, so before we open the, the floor to questions from the audience, I would like to ask you whether you'd like to uh, pick up on each other's presentations and discuss uh, certain points. I teach prelims at this particular university um, and we more or less just teach homo economicus. And the reason we rationalise this for ourselves is, well, well, we'll teach the simple model first and we'll complicate later. We never quite get around to the complicated stuff. Um, <laughs> So by the time you've done three years of PPE, you've never really come across this more complex view of humanity. Um, and um, so we are slowly changing. We're trying to introduce core, which somebody uh, referred to, Michael referred to. And um, we now have a behavioral economics option in, in the third year and all of these sorts of things. Um, but it's still a problem that we have as economists. If you study economics, it, Unless you're really concentrating, it's very easy to become right-wing. 
because you constantly <laughs> get shown all of these models in which people just care about themselves and maximize you know, profit or their own idiosyncratic welfare. Um, uh, so it'd be nice to sort of bring some of that stuff uh, forward in our, the way we educate ourselves. So on this note, um, I'd like to thank uh, you for coming here and participating with your question and I'd like to thank our panelists who did a marvelous job and uh, gave us very interesting presentation.